Hello, this is Gerard Robinson, and it is another wonderful day in Charlottesville, Virginia, for us to have a conversation on the learning curve. Now, I know some of you cried, you missed me last week, and I know that Kara was so excited to have someone else of her own kind, but to have her own way. But I'm actually back, Kara. Hopefully you're still have, glad to have me. I am so <laughs> happy to have you back. And of course, you matter very much to me. Just saying, it was, you know, nice every once in a while to have a little bit of girl power on the show. I mean, we've mm -hmm. had your wife, Kimberly, on the show. She could stand in every once in a while, you know, mm -hmm. just saying, no, but we missed you very much. And we're coming off of, so first of all, can we just say this is like the season two? We're in season two. Did you know we were in season two? Because I found out on Twitter. I was confused. <laughs> but um, but this show's been on the, we've been going for like a year, which is pretty amazing. When you think about yes. It. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, I have to say, and I mean this with all of my heart, it is one of the highlights of my week to get to record this podcast with you. And that's ditto. There we go. See, we make a pretty darn good team. So what do you what are you thinking about this week after this nice long weekend? Well, at least I had a nice long weekend, I have to say. What's uh, what's on your mind? Baltimore, but for a different reason. When we hear Baltimore, it's always the negative stuff, uh, the killings yeah, and everything else. Yeah. But, you know, I found a really interesting story, and this is from uh, CBS News Baltimore. Uh, it's from the CBS staff. September 2nd, Baltimore City Schools wreck and parts to host in-person learning centers for the, uh, for the fall semester. And what's so good to hear about this is you and I both know that a number of children before COVID-19 would attend school, but a lot of them would also go to out-of-school time or after-school programs. Well, those were shut down as well. And so the school system in Baltimore and the leadership of the Baltimore City Recreation and Park Division said, you know what, let's partner together and let's do two things. Number one, we're going to give 1,000 students in-person access to virtual learning sessions at at least 15 locations uh, in both schools in the city. And the second thing we're going to do is not only are we going to make sure they have an opportunity to learn in small groups of 10 to 15 students, uh, of course, all properly separated for those who are in person. But when school is done, we're going to give them a chance to exercise their bodies as well. So back to the whole idea of brain and body. Uh, and that's so particularly important when we look at the fact that in not just Baltimore, but in a number of cities and states where you find high poverty, you're also finding an increase in the number of students who uh, are obese. And we know that if you are obese as a young person, the number of challenges that can lead to for type 2 diabetes as an adult. So I'm just glad two government uh, institutions decided to partner together and do something positive and unique. So glad yeah, to hear. It. Yeah, I have a question about this. Now, this is free of charge to students and families? Yes. So because one of the things we've been reading about, you know, are a couple of school districts that are saying, oh, by the way, school's not going to be in session. But for a price, we'll provide you with a place to go during the day to do virtual learning. And that, as I've been watching, so I think this is happening in a couple of districts in California, is I'm like mind blown around that. And I have to say, I've also been a little bit skeptical of um, 
of areas. Um, I'll, I'll name a few right here in my back. Well, I won't name a few right here in my backyard. I'll just say they're right in my backyard where, you know, um, the teachers unions are steadfastly refusing face-to-face learning, at least for, you know, the foreseeable future. We, we can imagine it may get extended, but, um, but then they've got partnerships with places, um, that will help kids during the school day, such as YMCA's, which I think is phenomenal. But I, I've had a hard time understanding why one of the big complaints around here is that our schools aren't well ventilated. And having been in some of these other places, I know that they're probably even older buildings with different systems. But it sounds like what you're describing here in Baltimore is actually a really great way for the public school district to step up and try and meet the very diverse needs of parents. Because even if schools are open, not all parents want their kids back in physically in school mm-hmm. right now. And then parents who really don't have any choice other than to work, maybe even be out of the house working as many, mm-hmm. many people are during the day. This can be a really great thing. And for such a large um, urban school district, I think what a, I'm, I, too, am happy that we get to say some positive things about Baltimore, because it sounds like in the midst of some of these crazier stories, uh, this one's a good one. So. Loving it. All right, Gerard, um, I'm going to go a little far north, (laughs) further north of you. And this one, this story of the week takes us up to New Hampshire. And I'm I chose this one because ties in nicely with what we're going to hear about from our um, two guests today, which is religious liberty. So remember that little Espinoza case that we talked about for literally months? I've heard about it. (laughs) All right. Well, we're finally starting to see. We've seen a couple things in the past few months. First of all, I think we've seen what the opposition will do in response to Espinoza. And when I say opposition, I mean folks who would rather not have lots of options for parents um, in terms of we've seen law lawsuits in a couple places, South Carolina, North Carolina, noise of lawsuits in in other states against private school choice programs. But here on the more positive side, we're seeing what what really can happen in the wake of Espinoza. So in New Hampshire, they have something that is um, also we've got, uh, there's a similar program in Maine. So this feels like a very New Englandy thing, but they have something that's essentially a voucher program, but it's called a town tuitioning program. Mm -hmm. And the reason these programs exist is because some states are so rural. Um, New Hampshire has some towns, cities and towns that might have, for example, a K to five school or a primary school, but they don't have enough kids to really have a high school. And so in that case, what parents can do is they can choose to send their child to a school in a neighboring town, it could be a public school, or to a private school, and the state will pay whatever the cost of the district that they would have attended, right? They'll, they'll pay that to the private school. But the catch here is that in New Hampshire, um, families have not been able to choose faith-based private schools, which is a pretty big deal because uh-huh. on its face, this seems to fly. This was really what the Supreme Court was asked to decide in Espinoza. So um, our friend Tim Keller, who's been on this podcast from the Institute for Justice, says, you know, he went and he found plaintiffs um, in New Hampshire. He's also looking in Maine and Vermont. Um, I forgot to mention Vermont is a place that has a similar problem. And they're going to use Espinoza to say, hey, by the way, New Hampshire, Mm. Maine, Vermont, you're actually not allowed to do this anymore because you allow kids to take vouchers, essentially vouchers, from 
from from the state to a private school as long as it's not religious and that's discriminating on the basis of a faith-based program. So um, we'll be very interested to watch this and maybe we'll have Tim Keller back to talk to us about the result. But I think that this is, we've got two positive stories today, Gerard. So very excited. Um, coming up, so we've got um, we, two positive stories and two really cool guys to talk to us about their new book, um, all about religious liberty and education. And I'm really excited for this conversation coming up with Jason Bedrick and Jay Green right after this. And listeners, we have two not one, but two really exciting guests today here to talk about a great new book. Uh, first guest is Jay Green, Distinguished Professor and Chair of the Department of Education Reform at the University of Arkansas. Professor Green's current areas of research interest include school choice, culturally enriching field trips, which I want to devote a whole episode to because it sounds really <laughs> cool, and the effects of, of schools on non-cognitive and civic values. You've seen his work in a number of journals covering a diverse set of disciplines, so I'm not even going to name them all because he's he's widely published. And um, really cool fun fact, his research on school choice was cited four times in the Supreme Court's opinions in the um, in the landmark Zelman v. Um, Simmons-Harris case. So Dr. Green has been a professor of government at the University of Texas at Austin and the University of Houston, and he received his BA in history right up the road here uh, from Tufts University and his PhD from the other side of the road at Harvard University in the government department. We've also got with us someone who, another person many of you know, Jason Bedrick, the director of policy at EdChoice. Jason not only has his own podcast, he's been on this podcast before, and he has previously served as a policy analyst at Cato. He has been a legislator in the New Hampshire House of Representatives. We talked about New Hampshire in a story at the top of the show, and was an education policy research fellow at the Josiah Bartlett Center for Public Policy. He, too, has a master's degree in public policy from the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, where he was a fellow at the Taubman Center. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being with us on The Learning Curve today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Okay. So Jason, we had you on, you tell me it's a year ago. I find it a little hard to believe, but like you've had a baby since there's been a pandemic since, so it must've been a year. Um, and you at the time were talking to us about this book that was not yet finished, but now it's finished and it's out and our listeners can find it on Amazon. Indeed. Um, and the name of the book is religious liberty and education, a case study of yeshivas versus New York. So I would love to just put this out to the both of you. Can you frame for our listeners what the book is about and um, what it is about school choice policy and these issues of religious religious liberty that are so worth talking about, discussing, and studying? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, first of all, uh, we have we owe a debt of gratitude to you for helping us name the book because we had it reversed, but uh, you and your uh, your co-host Bob Bowden back in the day. Uh, said, you know what, maybe you should put religious liberty and education first instead of yeshivas versus New York first. Uh, but I mean, what the book is a, I'm, not that, I'm not that good at naming things. But go ahead. <laughs> uh, so thank you for that. Um, uh, but the book essentially is it's addressing this issue of religious liberty and education. And we have uh, in this country uh, a long history of these two subjects uh, clashing 
Uh, so, for example, uh, you know, your listeners may be familiar with the, the famous uh, Pierce versus uh, Society of Sisters case back in 1925. Uh, this is when uh, the KKK and other nativist groups in Oregon had uh, persuaded the government to outlaw private education, basically because they wanted to outlaw Catholic schools. And so the Catholics appealed and the uh, U.S. Supreme Court uh, ruled that, uh, in their words, the child is not the mere creature of the state and that the state cannot prohibit private education. Um, but that still left open uh, many questions, such as, you know, to what extent can the government get involved in education? Uh, so there were uh, compulsory education laws. Uh, these were challenged in, uh, in a 1972 decision, uh, Wisconsin v. Yoder, where the Amish said that they wanted to, uh, they, they believed that they had a First Amendment free exercise exemption from the compulsory education laws. And the U.S. Supreme Court agreed. They said, you know, up until eighth grade, you know, you, you do have to comply. But then if you want to keep your kids home from high school and have them working on the farm and, you know, doing Bible study, that that was fine. Uh, and so here, the, the sort of modern case is this case of uh, some Hasidic yeshivas in New York. Some call them ultra-Orthodox yeshivas, although that's not a term that's used uh, really in the community, uh, where some, some of the yeshivas uh, are being accused of not providing a, uh, a level of secular education that meets the state's substantial equivalency requirements. And we can talk a little bit more about what that means later. Uh, but the ultimate question that it's getting at is who is responsible for raising children and who gets to make decisions about their education? Is it parents? Is it religious communities? Is it the state? Is there some combination? Um, do we owe deference to uh, one group or the other when there is a clash between, let's say, what parents and religious communities want and what the state believes is in the best interest of the child? Uh, you know, what is the threshold that parents uh, must meet in educating their children? and who ultimately gets to decide. And so uh, we assembled a, a variety of different philosophers and scholars and practitioners to address these questions in our book. We've got three different chapters that uh, analyze it from different uh, philosophical points of view. One of them from a friend of the podcast and particularly a friend of yours, Kara's, uh, Ashley Rogers-Burner. Uh, and then we've got uh, four chapters looking at this uh, saying, practically speaking, you know, if the government were to take a more robust uh, interest in how um, private schools are educating children. What would that mean for the Jewish community? What would that mean more broadly for the Christian community, for the Muslim community, and also for homeschoolers? Uh, and then finally, we've got three chapters that look at the legal question, um, both here in the United States. And uh, we also have a chapter uh, from, again, your mentor, Charles Glenn, on how this question has been adjudicated in Europe. And so we think that this is, uh, it, it raises all sorts of very fascinating, this case raises all sorts of very fascinating issues that we think are of impo uh, great importance today. Well, they're certainly of great importance today, especially given that we're seeing these issues play out um, just really recently, another lawsuit in North Carolina. We've got, um, you know, ongoing uh, stuff in Maryland, Florida, Indiana. So things that we're reading about all the time and maybe especially top of mind as um, as more and more um, parents, given the situation we're right now, I think, are thinking about choice and maybe interested in different choices that they might not have even thought about uh, before. Um, 
Jay Crean, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about maybe a specific chapter in the book or a big a big takeaway for our listeners that um, that they might uh, that might further pique their interest to buy. I mean, I think that this is. It sounds like you've got an all star lineup here, so I know we're excited to read it. But what else can you tell listeners about some of the big takeaways or learnings? Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, look, we're very pleased with the book and and I do think it has a great collection of contributors um, with a diverse set of perspectives and also who are able to talk about the implications of this issue for lots of different communities, uh, including Christian educators, Muslim educators, homeschoolers. Um, and I think all of those communities would be particularly interested in this kind of issue. But I mean, I, I think one thing I could, could mention is um, some of what I learned in this process. I mean, part of what motivates me to work on a book is that I, I want to learn about an issue, uh, just like I think the readers might want to learn about an issue. So one of the things I learned in this process is that uh, the state is, is, has ex- expansive powers uh, to regulate the content of private school education without funding that education. That's not the issue. The issue is not what is required of schools that participate in choice programs that are subsidized by the government. The issue here is um, is the extent to which the state can regulate the content of education for education that people pay for themselves without mm-hmm. assistance from the state. And as it turns out, they legally appear to have fairly expansive power. So in the state of New York, uh, the requirement, as as Jason mentioned, is uh, that the education in private schools has to be substantially equivalent to the education in public schools. So the content has to be substantially equivalent. So roughly what that means is that the public school curriculum has to be roughly the the curriculum of private schools. And this clearly interferes with communities that have a very different vision of what the content of education should be. Uh, That could be a religious difference, but it also includes people with secular differences. So some of the parties in the New York lawsuit uh, include um, uh, progressive schools that have a very different vision of, of how schools ought to be operated, um, and also lots of different communities of homeschoolers who have very different visions of how schools should be run that are independent of religious conviction. Um, and so that's one of the things that surprised me is, is just the extent to which the state is able to regulate the content of private education um, uh, legally. Now, the, the second thing that, that surprised me uh, that I, I think I learned from this process is that um, the law may say the state can do it, but that doesn't mean the state will. Um, and the thing, the thing that's, <laughs> but stops, New York did, <laughs> well, New York did, uh, and they were kind of forced into it, um, by, by a lawsuit, um, from critics of these schools. And, and we'll get to that in, in a second. But, but the point is that, that organized political interests have a, a substantial influence over whether the state does attempt to regulate the content of private education or not. And so I think for for listeners who are very concerned about this issue, they should be aware that if they want to exercise influence, they shouldn't be donating 
first to the legal defense fund, although that might be important, really they have to get organized politically with their elected representatives and that that has, actually has a lot more long-term effect on the extent to which the state regulates the content of private education or not. Fascinating. So could you dig in a little bit more to the concept of substantial equivalency? So let's like for the listeners, if we can play it out. So the idea that um, on the one hand, there's the idea that the content and I'm I'm assuming here academic content, like that somehow the state has a responsibility to ensure that kids are graduating from schools, being able to you know, read and write and do arithmetic, as we would say. Um, but then the counter argument to that is that you can't moderate the way in which that happens. So in some schools, you you mentioned a Waldorf, a progressive school, like a Waldorf model. Those um, The curriculum might be delivered in a very different way that maybe a public school system wouldn't recognize or doesn't look like a public school curriculum. Can you talk a little bit more about um, this concern that I, that, the people who um, brought the lawsuit ha- were 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 voicing that somehow learning is not occurring versus how do we um, how do we suss out that no this is just a deli- a different delivery mechanism and there is in fact the freedom for private schools to do what they will with their curriculum is there a line to be drawn or how do you, how do you deal with that? Yes, I think, I mean, first of all, this idea of substantial equivalence is not really well defined. Uh, It has its roots in the the Blaine Amendment era. Uh, So when, uh, first of all, I mean, your your listeners are probably very familiar with the Blaine Amendment, especially given uh, the Espinoza decision earlier this summer. So I won't go into the the whole history of it. Uh, But we know that it was an effort of nativists to make sure that Catholic schools did not have access to public funding the way that the common schools did, even though the common schools at the time were de facto non-denominational Protestants. Uh, so uh, given that the Catholics were nevertheless going to be running their privately funded schools, the state still wanted to make sure that they weren't too far away from what was going on in the public schools. Um, but interestingly, actually, the Catholics, um, they they wanted to be seen as good Americans, so they actually wanted to to ensure that their schools uh, looked very much like the public schools as well. And so, you know, they were they basically modeled the way that they um, set up their schools after the public school system. It's just it had a Catholic flavor instead of a Protestant flavor. Um, but here in the case of the yeshivas, um, they want something that is fundamentally very, very different. Uh, they are spending most of their day um, engaged in Jewish studies. I mean, so you hear often the, the argument, oh, they're, they're uneducated, these kids are graduating and they're illiterate. Um, well, that's not the case. They're literate in Hebrew, they're literate in Aramaic. Uh, they have very deep knowledge about, uh, you know, the, the Bible, the Talmud, uh, and all these uh, later Jewish commentaries and, and subjects uh, that you know, they're spending, uh, they get up and start school a lot earlier than their public school counterparts. And they end the day much later, often at five o'clock or in high school, they'll even go back for evening courses. Uh, so they're spending a large chunk of the day doing what essentially looks like a humanities study in, um, you know, in, in higher education. Uh, they're very often studying in, uh, in small groups or in, with a partner, uh, taking a text, doing a very close reading of it, 
um, and arguing over it, trying to determine what the meaning is, uh, almost you know, in some cases sort of like in, in a law school class. Uh, and so they are very highly educated. They're just educated in a very different way than students are being educated down the street. And so their English language might not be as strong as the students down the street and their math and science and and history are are not going to be as strong, but they are being educated in a different way. And so the question becomes where the government has a compelling interest to draw that line. I, I think there's also an important distinction between uh, regulating inputs and regulating outcomes. So, mm-hmm. um, and there's ambiguity about what is required here as well. Uh, it appears that that the st- statute is focused on inputs, and so the regulations the state is attempting to formulate have to do with the number of minutes that should be spent on each subject, um, as opposed to the success of the students in those subjects. There's there's considerable anecdotal evidence that the graduates of these yeshiva are are uh, fairly proficient in um, in secular subjects uh, when measured as an outcome, especially relative to other New York public schools in the same areas where they live. Um, they're they're actually doing quite well uh, on outcome measures. Um, but on input measures, they don't meet the, they don't spend the same number of minutes on every subject as as the public schools, and that's that's part of the dispute. And so, I mean, as Jason was saying earlier, a lot of this ultimately stems from um, compulsory education laws. And so, if the state's going to require education, then the state has to think about well, what does it mean by education? What are what are they requiring? And I think that much of the early intent of, of compulsory education was really connected to uh, child labor laws. It was designed to make sure that children would receive something that resembled school and that they were not simply being put to work. Um, and that's not at all the issue here. So now this goes much further than I think the original intent of compulsory education laws and is really getting into how should we be raising children? Um, what is it important for them to know? Um, and the state is beginning to feel like, well, maybe it should have some say in that. Uh, we're seeing some current political disputes about, about the values that, that young people hold and uh, some question as to whether the state, through its, uh, its schools as well as its regulation of private schools, ought to have some uh, ability to shape the values and priorities of young people. Um, But that obviously brings them into conflict with parents and other communities that have their own distinct visions of of what uh, uh, children ought to hold dear. Um, And I think that's the essence of this kind of conflict. Um, But but I think you, you also asked, how did this come about? And I think Jason might be better positioned to to describe the, the types of complaints that, that led to the initial lawsuit that forced the state of New York, frankly, reluctantly into this whole dispute. Because politically, this is bad for politicians in New York. They don't like having to do this. This is a completely unrewarded activity on their part <laughs> to attempt to regulate um, some very uh, popular and apparently successful schools 
Um, but but they are being they, they were forced into it through a lawsuit by a, a sub community of former students in those schools who were not completely happy with their experience. And, and maybe Jason could speak more more to that. Well, sure. Just a very brief. Um, it's a group called Young Advocates for Fair Education or YAFID, and uh, their lawsuit didn't actually did not actually go very far. Uh, it was eventually dismissed, um, but they still used the lawsuit to bring a lot of attention to their cause, and they were effectively able to shame the Department of Education into launching an investigation. Um, which they they launched it. It was uh, originally the complaint was 39 different schools. Eventually, it was whittled down to uh, I think about 28 or 29. Um, some of them were deemed to be institutes of higher learning. Uh, others weren't were had been closed down or were no or weren't even um, schools. So uh, they were focusing on those 30 schools and about half of which they they found were making some sort of progress. Um, and then there was a small number that they said were. Um, really not meeting the standards and not making progress toward toward meeting the standards at all. Um, the state had tried to force them to meet these new guidelines. And the guidelines were uh, not just in, you know, math and English, but it was uh, 12 different subjects. And um, the, the yeshivas complained that if they really followed the seat time requirements, it would actually take the majority of the day on these subjects as opposed to what it is that they wanted to actually be teaching their students. They ended up, uh, the yeshivas um, were joined by Catholic schools, and as Jay noted earlier, some independent schools, including some progressive schools, that they, they eventually won that lawsuit, but they won it essentially on technical grounds. They did not win on constitutional grounds. So um, this these constitutional questions, these substantive questions, remain open for later adjudication. Great points. AJ, AJ since Gerard, hope all is well. Very, yeah. Yeah, good to hear you. Well, since we're on the subject of State Department of Education, here's my first question. A 2018 report by the Pioneer Institute outlined how for a decade, Massachusetts had been blocking upwards to $300 million in federal IDEA special ed funding from reaching eligible Catholic and Jewish schools in the city, really throughout the state. You know, in looking at New York and other states, how do you think state departments of education are handling these policy issues around state and federal dollars and religious school students? Well, so, I mean, one of the interesting things about the this book is that, um, uh, these schools weren't even receiving any of that money, but that did not exempt them from being regulated, um, and, okay. and and perhaps very intrusively so. Uh, so the whole argument about how government shackles uh, follow government shackles—you um, don't need shackles to get shackles. Um, you can get them <laughs> anyway. Um, and so, so yes, I th- I think you know you're. You're right that that religious schools and organizations interested in helping them um, should be advocating for getting the monies to which they're entitled and making use of them without too much fear of, of interference from the state because, frankly, they are subject to interference anyway. So it's their independence is something they have to fight for politically regardless of the money. Um, now – 
yeah, to just clarify really quick that uh, they these most of these schools are actually receiving some money from the state in New York uh, or from the city. Um, you know, usually that's around, you know, food for low income students or it is for transportation or in some cases security grants or technology grants. Uh, but it's pennies compared to the twenty nine thousand dollars per pupil on average that New York City schools are spending to educate uh, children at district schools. Good point. But um, yes, thanks for the clarification. They 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 do receive something, but they're not uh, participating uh, fully in Title One or IDEA, which are the kind of big dollar uh, government programs. Um, Catholic school systems have been more adept in other cities at getting access to those funds, but in other places, they just find it too much of a hassle and they don't. Um, but uh, yes, the state provides funds to support students, regardless of setting, uh, for a number of programs, but, but it is nonetheless true that uh, students in certain settings are much more uh, – able to access those funds than students in private uh, and religious settings. Absolutely. So let's take this to level of higher education. So right now, our higher ed system is still the envy of the world, uh, and it's been completely decentralized and it's entirely choice-driven, uh, including publicly supporting federal uh, schools with federal and state loans and grants, and we even allow people to choose religiously affiliated colleges and universities and pay for it with uh, public money. Why, on the other hand, is the K-12 model for education so secular and, as some would say, so anti-religious? I think that the roots really are in the common school movement in the early 20th, sorry, the late uh, 19th century. Uh, the idea was that they wanted uh, all children to be going to one type of school system, and they were very concerned with uh, this wave of Catholic immigrants, and they wanted to Protestantize. Um, they, you know, they said Americanize, but essentially what they meant is Protestantize uh, these students. Uh, then in the early 20th century, the public schools become secularized. And so it's, it's this, basically it's a sort of a, a legacy system. Whereas in higher ed, because the government doesn't have compulsory higher education, at least not yet, uh, <laughs> there was a lot more freedom. Uh, but where the government says you must do this thing and therefore we are going to completely subsidize it, uh, the government ends up exercising uh, a great deal of control. Absolutely. Jay, anything from you? Uh, well, uh, I mean, I think another factor that has uh, increased the amount of conflict over these issues over time is the centralization of control over schools. So uh, while uh, Jason's completely right that, that the common school um, was, was an effort to um, uh, detach Catholic immigrants from their Catholic roots, um, uh, it was only partially effective in its efforts, not only because decisions like Pierce blocked them from, from mm -hmm. banning private options, but also because schools were locally run, really locally run. And, and decisions about the content and manner of education were really decided within local communities that tended 
to be relatively homogenous in their characteristics. And so um, uh, as um, Later Day Saint um, uh, uh, folks in Utah um, have realized is, you know, public schools are potentially okay for your religious community if you have a lot of influence over what those local public schools are doing. And this was uh, more possible in our country uh, for the diverse set of communities we had, given that education was uh, decided and controlled uh, primarily locally. But as we shifted control to state governments and, and now to federal government increasingly, um, we are inviting increasing amounts of conflict because we can't simply agree to mm. do it differently mm -hmm. in different communities to accommodate the different preferences of different people in different communities. We now are forcing common solutions on people with very uh, diverse sets of priorities. And, um, and I think that has made this conflict uh, much more intense and, and frequent. Uh, over the last century and 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 in particular in the last few decades. Both of you uh, referenced a couple of things that just you know sparked a, a, another question. So we know in Espinoza, uh, Supreme Court ruled in a way that at least people who support school choice think that's great. We know that in the Zellman case, Jay, your research was referenced. When we look at Supreme Court decisions, the plaintiffs have tended to be uh, African-American students or white students, but often in Christian or Protestant or Catholic schools, broadly speaking. When I moved to work in Milwaukee, that would have been 2004 or six, on a fellowship to work with Dr. Howard Fuller, uh, I happened to be there when we had to lift the uh, cap on the number of students who can get, in, get a, 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 a voucher. Well, doing that work, I had a chance to work with a group of uh, Jewish schools uh, that were a part of the system. And often when we talk about school choice, we often overlook the fact that Jewish schools are part of the K-12 uh, school choice segment. How do you think your book and even this conversation will brought the conversation about the role of Jewish schools, not only in school choice, but as a contributor to the broader conversation about education and diversity in America? Well, the Jewish well, schools. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say Jew, Jewish schools are really relatively small in, in the national landscape. And so we didn't pick uh, the case of 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 this controversy over yeshivas in New York because we thought this that um, these schools are common and widespread. But the problems and challenges they're facing are increasingly common and widespread for many different communities, uh, including various kinds of Christian schools, um, homeschools, Muslim schools, and and that's why we use this as a as a case to illustrate the, the dispute um, so that it could be brought to the attention of much broader uh, sets of, of, of communities. Yeah, I think that's right. Just like, you know, the, the Amish are a, relatively speaking, a very, very small community. And yet mm -hmm. the, the Yoder decision had very broad implications, you know, for all Americans and everybody that's involved in private education uh, or that wants to homeschool. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of jurisprudence that's built on that case. Uh, it's a very small percentage of the population that's in a 
a Jewish school. And yet the questions that this raises constitutionally um, and also, you know, uh, philosophically uh, extend far beyond this uh, small community. Thank you. Yeah, to both of you, Jason, Jay, thanks so much for spending this time with us. Um, and again, for our listeners, the title of the book is Religious Liberty and Education, apparently Bob, Bob's title, um, <laughs> A Case Study of Yeshivas versus New York. Um, this is, you know, it's really... We highly recommend it. It's an important book with lots of great, uh, important and diverse thinkers, uh, contributors. And um, I think, Jason, to the point you made, like still not resolved. It seems like, you know, we've been grappling with these issues for decades. We will continue to grapple with these issues. And I thank you both for for putting this together, for bringing this out for us to read. I know I feel like I'm going to start um, a book club uh, on this at my day job. Please because do. We, we could all benefit <laughs> Here, here. All right. Fantastic. Well, until next time. So keep writing so we can have you on again soon. Thank you so much. Looking forward Thank to it. Thank you. Thanks, guys. So here is my tweet of the week, and it's from September, uh, New York Times book review. Lech Walesa founder of the Polish Free Trade Labor Union Solidarity and former president of Poland on his career and country 40 years on from the uprising that set his career in motion. And since we're talking about Labor Day, I think it was at least worth noting that here was someone who not only was a member of a labor union, but who decided to speak boldly with his action, which put in place, as we would know it today, the fall of communism in many parts of Europe, some would say the world, but just thought that was a very interesting tweet of the week from the New York Times Review of Books. Absolutely. A very heady tweet of the week. I love it, Gerard. So um, next week, we are going to be talking to someone who um, is a very popular person right now. Uh, we are going to be talking to Kelly Smith. He's the founder and CEO of Prenda, Prenda Microschools. We've talked about Prenda on this podcast before, but we haven't yet had the opportunity to talk to Kelly Smith. So looking forward to that next week. And I think that I've got um, some friends very interested in microschools who uh, wouldn't normally listen to an education podcast who might be tuning in for this one. So let's spread the word far and wide. And until then, my friend Gerard, happy to have you back. Have an excellent week. And we'll talk real soon. Look forward to it. Okay, take care. Take care.